You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance, that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day the music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I Did you write the book of love and do you have faith in God above? Hello and welcome to episode 78 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the True True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm taking a look at the NOM issue number 69, which is the final part of the second in Punisher Invades the NOM storyline. I'll also be looking at January and February of 1972, which is where I pulled Don McLean's American Pie from as it spent four weeks on the top of the Billboard Hot 100, starting on January 15th and ending with the week of February 5th. It's a song that I'm probably going to give its own spotlight on a future episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, so I won't get too much into it except to say that the phrase, The Day the Music Died, has become synonymous with the event mentioned at the beginning of the song, which is the plane crash in February of 1959 that killed Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens. The song does go beyond just that one event, though, and is a musical journey through the 1960s. It is, in its entirety, 8 minutes and 33 seconds long. It is one of the songs with the longest running times to ever hit number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100. I believe the distinction of the longest running time for a number 1 Billboard Hot 100 hit belongs to Meatloaf and the song I Would Do Anything For Love, But I Won't Do That, which on the album clocked in at 11 minutes long, even though the single version was cut nearly in half. It's the distinction that becomes... Controversial because of the way long singles are often cut to fit radio formats, but this is definitely one of those the DJ has to go to the bathroom singles, if you know what I mean. Our issue, which came out on April 28, 1992, and had a June 1992 cover date, is called Down to the Ground, and our credits are as follows. Chuck Dixon, writer, Kevin Kabasik, penciler, Jimmy Palmiotti, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The cover, as it has been with all three of the Punisher issues here, is by Jorge Savino and shows the beat-up face of Frank Castle and what looks like a woman's hand holding his dog tags, which read Castle, 
Frank. Now, of course, this entire time we've had him going by the name of Castiglione, so I don't know what's up with that. Perhaps we'll find out at some point. As I said at the beginning of the last episode, this is the best of the three covers, even if Zafino's art is a little too poor man's Frank Miller for me. It looks like Castle is laying on the ground and is completely out of it. One eye is half open, and the other one looks like it's rolling into his head. He's got a bruised face and what looks like blood caked on the side of his mouth. He was really beat up at the end of the last issue, too, so this is a good bridge between the two parts of the story. Plus, it's one of those covers that does jump out at you more than the other ones. You know, if you didn't see the huge Punisher logo at the top of the cover. We open in a naval hospital, and from the point of the view of the person in the hospital bed, as Ice walks into his view, Ice is just stopping by before the troop is shipped home, and our guy is happy to see him. He thanks Ice for saving his life, and then asks Ice to do him a favor, which is to finish telling the story about Frank Castiglione. Ice begins reminding us where we left off. Castiglione has just wasted his CEO with his bare hands, and they were getting him to a hospital, but he was obviously going to face some consequences, and what we see is a bandaged Frank in a hospital bed in a prison cell strapped down. Ice then picks it up from there. He hadn't talked. He didn't say a word in his defense. No mention of the fact that his CEO was taking cash to get AWOLs out of the NOM. No mention that it was a scam, and those grunts never made it more than a click from base. Weeks went by, and he still didn't talk. Not even when a full bird colonel came to talk to him. So the colonel um, talks to him, and he asks what he wants. He wants to hear his version of it. And as the colonel's talking, he uh, he sees a the colonel, a beat up v- VC person, and a uh, and his his CEO, uh, but he's not. But Frank is not uh, is not speaking. Weeks went by for the Brooklyn boy. His body healed and got stronger. His mind, well, that's a whole different story. They kept him chained up in that room. He wasn't allowed to see anyone except the jarheads who brought his food. He had nothing to say to them. 1,000 sit-ups in the morning, 1,000 push-ups in the evening. He found himself in the rhythm, in the pain. His head was clear and his body tight when they came for him. So the colonel once again says he can order him to talk. And then he says that he's Castiglione. Some wild things went on at Phoebe, uh, at Firebase Phoebe. Frank's like, I don't know what you mean. He says, well, it was a big offense that nobody saw coming. Uh, we had witnesses say you and the CEO had your private war going on. And, and Frank asked if he could speak uh, freely. He says, Makuta was a louse. I killed him and I do it again. He was selling out our guys, offering to help them desert for cash and then leaving them in the bush to die. He was back in the first Marines. The colonel asked for proof. He says, just my word. He says, I'll look into it. And he says, in the meantime, I don't want to hear a whisper of this from you. And he says, one bad apple doesn't have to run ruin morale. The core doesn't need to flack right now. Uh, and then he asks, you know, why? Frank's like, what about me? The colonel says, what did you join the Marines for? He says, to defend my country, to fight. He says, you'll get their chance at that. No shortage of that in the NAM, right? That colonel put our boy to work. He was back in the first Marines, but in a lot of ways he was all by himself. All of the things he'd seen had shaken his world. What do the Corps mean if evil mothers like Mikuta could become officers? He kept going round and round about it, his mind never leaving him alone, but the war was there to let him know how dangerous it was to get lost inside your head. Let his mind slip for a minute and he'd be dead. Maybe that was the idea. Maybe the war was supposed to gobble him up. No trial. No hearing. And that bird put him in a unit where nobody knew him. 
the bird with no name. So they their convoy hits a hits a landmine or something. He's he's running around like he's he's on fire a little bit. Everybody's t- running for cover. Classic maneuver. The little man had this section of road zone for the mortar teams. The machine guns kept them pinned so Charlie could can walk the mortar rounds onto them. Works every time. Works unless there's some animal crazy enough to take down the killing fire. Frank dives underwater. He was one ticked off marine. Mad at the world for dealing him dirty. Mad at the little man for being so stubborn. Mad at himself for being so stupid. Stupid enough to let two slime like Makuta and Daryl bring this world low. Let him get into his head and make everything rotten. Make him hurt. Make him doubt. The colonel sent him out here to die and said he came to life. All at once he saw his purpose in life. His purpose in the Nam. He was there to fight. He was here to survive. He was here to punish. And over the course of these uh, couple of pages, Frank has basically picked up an M16 and and an AK-47 take out a few VC and then picked up a big, huge, um, looks like kind of just a, like, like an M60 or, or something very, very similar to it. Uh, although I don't think that's an M60 and is holding it and firing while planes are flying overhead. And then the, the captions start up again. The unit got to cover. The gunships came fly, like flying death. They took over where the Brooklyn boy left off. The rage bled out of him. His legs were stone and his arms solid lead. But his buddies were there to help him up. Men whose names he didn't know. But they were his brothers. As long as he knew that, he could never be hurt again. So long as he was with Marines, he was with family. His family made him strong. His brothers were there to watch his back, always. He worked shoulder to shoulder with them in the months that came, in common labor, and in dealing death. And after a year and one month, his tour was over. The tour was over, but not the war. And he's he's standing at a you know, at a base, tuffle slung over his back, and all of a sudden that colonel comes up to him and says, Going home, going home. A hero, two silver stars, your CO put you up for a medal of honor. You know that? He says, no, I didn't. He says, what are your plans, son? He says, I'm re-upping. I'm coming back, sir. And he takes a box of cigars, and he shoves it at the colonel. He says, did you hear me? Colonel, no name, sir. Coming back, sir. That full bird stood there and took it. That's when Frank knew that the colonel believed about the MIA's believe because he'd known all along whether the colonel was a part of McCuda's dirty business or just covering it up there was a wrong here that only he could make right so the guy asked I so he did this guy re-up and I says yeah two more tours he might have even re-upped another time under a different name huh that can't be the end what happened that colonel got himself drilled through the head with a 50 cal round where did that happen Saigon and the steps of the Hotel Parisian shot took him from almost 700 yards. Man, how do you deal with that? Try this. Makuta, Daryl, and Colonel No Name were in the Corps, but they didn't belong to the Corps. Get it? I guess. You got the rest of your life in Grab Bud, Idaho to think about it, and I want you to think about it. Anytime you get a dumb idea, like coming back here. The end. And then there is a Kevin Kabasik, Jimmy Palmiotti pinup of Frank Castle as a soldier with the Punisher behind him before we get to uh, the end of the comic. So, 
Before I, I really get deep into my review here, I'm going to print out that these three issues are 19, 20, and 19 pages worth of story, which rounds up to 58 pages as opposed to the 66 pages we would see in all three issues, uh, if all three issues were 22 pages apiece. Uh, there's no letter column in this issue, but there are a ton of ads. So I don't know if Dixon couldn't find a way to trim down the three issues into two, or if he had a slightly more than two and had to pad it out, although I suppose he could have had Kevin Kabasik do an extra splash page in the action scenes or something. Either way, there's definitely the feeling that you're not getting as much for your money, and I think that this overall story arc embodies that. All right, you're getting the Punisher, you're getting something regarding his backstory, plus you're getting a slight explanation as to why he's Castiglione and not Castle throughout the story. Isis' comment that he heard that he may have re-upped under a different name is actually quite accurate, though we won't find that out until after the NOM as a comic series has ended. I said before that this is the second of three Punisher and the NOM storylines, and it is. The third one was scheduled to be issues number 84, 85, and 86 of the series, but the series was canceled, and what Marvel did was collect those Punisher stories in a, fin- in a trade paperback called The Punisher and the Nam Final Invasion. It's actually a trade that's pretty hard to come by, and by the grace of the collecting gods, I managed to get it for under $20 on eBay a couple of years ago. Anyway, a quick glance at my plans for this podcast shows that those three stories will be covered in one extra-sized episode toward the end of my run here. That'll be episode number 98. In that story, we'll get the whole Castiglione Castle thing fleshed out a little more. Here, we get most of an answer. What we also get an answer to is what's going to happen to a guy who killed the commanding officer, but a CO who was crooked. Now, we've all seen this happen before, because the Larnick got fragged all the way back in issue 18, I think it was. And there was really never any resolution as to exactly who did that, except that there was a court-martial and nobody was found guilty. Here, however, there is no court-martial, because Dixon is establishing that what Frank did was essentially a justifiable homicide. You've got a situation where the victim was killed because he was doing something unethical, immoral, and illegal. And that colonel either knew it, knew it, or was looking the other way. It's never specified. So you can bet that if there was a court-martial, he'd wind up in as much hot water as Frank is. Plus, he winds up being the type of person who clearly wants to take care of his own problems. It's a good plot point. It's a good way to show that this character, well, was a villain of sorts. It's also a good way to get Frank to become, well... Rambo, really. I mean, if I'm being completely honest. Because as much as I enjoyed it, this whole thing is playing out like a solid action movie from the 80s or 90s, complete with the scene of Frank doing push-ups in his cell, the cigar-smoking colonel, and a splash page where he picks up a giant gun, the type of gun you'd see Roadblock from G.I. Joe using. In fact, I'm pretty sure, I think I said I said it was an M60 earlier in my um, synopsis, but I did do a little bit of... Uh, background on this. I think it's an M2 Browning machine gun, which is the exact gun that Roblox uses. Uh, so, and, and, and the splash page is him firing on all the enemy while jets fly overhead. I mean, that, by the way, is like, and that's that's the page where they have the phrase, he was there to punish. I mean, we're laying it on really thick here, people. But, like I've said, and I've said this more than once, this is Ice's story. He's telling the story to the kid. It's not supposed to be something that really happened, or at least the real story of what really happened, and that's what makes this work. It's a fantasy story, a glory dream, a way to entertain someone who's seen how tough this war can be on a soldier firsthand because he nearly died. Not only that, it's the story that was keeping the kid alive, in a sense, during the first two issues. Ice, as he was rescuing the guy, wanted the guy to stay conscious because it was assumed, and probably right for so, 
that once he fell asleep or once he went under, he probably wouldn't wake back up again. And that happens very often. So this story, as crazy as it sounds, is what helped this kid through. It's a good war story in that regard. And I, and I talked a little bit about that last episode. I don't have much more to say about the artwork uh, beyond what I've already said. Kabasik has some experience with the Punisher at this point. He and Palmiati do a really good job at getting the action flick feel of the storyline across. Uh, there's also that pinup after the last page with Frank as the Punisher in the background holding an Uzi behind Frank the Marine firing his M16 in Vietnam. And overall, I've been pleasantly surprised by this storyline, and while it's not crucial to the overall Nam narrative, it at least was worth the read, and I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. I'll be back in a moment with historical context and ads. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Okay, so here is January and February of 1972. My sources are, as usual, Wikipedia as well as the History Place. On January 23rd, the United States Air Force bombing of Viet Cong guerrilla strongholds in South Vietnam is halted after more than nine years. A historian would later note that, quote, some four million tons of bombs fell, unquote, on Vietnam, making it the most bombed country in the history of aerial warfare. On January 25th, Nixon announces a proposed eight-point peace plan for Vietnam and also reveals that Henry Kissinger has secretly been negotiating with the North Vietnamese. However, Hanoi rejects Nixon's peace overture. Uh, January 27th, this is not a Vietnam thing, but it is, it is important to the 1970s, early 1970s political history, especially Nixon, because it's a Watergate thing. In a meeting at the office of U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell, G. Gordon Liddy presented presents the Gemstone Plan to Mitchell, John Dean, and Jeb Magruder. Mitchell was the uh, director of the Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP, and Liddy was CREEP's chief lawyer. Liddy suggests budgeting a million dollars for mugging and even kidnapping, quote, leaders of anti-Nixon demonstrations, hiring prostitutes to solicit during the Democratic National Convention, and break-ins and installation of electronic surveillance as necessary. Mitchell rejects this plan, but he retains Liddy to suggest new ideas. On February 6, two weeks before his historic visit to the People's Republic of China, President Nixon secretly and unsuccessfully asked the Chinese government to arrange a meeting there with North Vietnam, Vietnam's peace negotiator, Li Duc Tho. On February 16th, American and South Vietnamese forces complete a 24-hour period of bombing strikes against North Vietnam, with almost 400 bombing strikes carried out in some of the heaviest raids of the Vietnam War. On February 19th, Radio Hanoi broadcast a live press conference to display five newly captured American prisoners of war. From February 21st to the 28th, President Nixon visits China and meets with Mao Zedong and Prime Minister Zhou Enlai 
to forge a new diplomatic relations with the communist nation. Nixon's visit causes great concern in Hanoi that their wartime ally, China, might be inclined to give unfavorable settlement of the war to improve Chinese relations with the United States. On February 24th, for the first time since the Paris peace talks concerning Vietnam three years earlier, the two communist delegations walked out of a session. The groups were protesting the recent surge in bombing by the United States, but the talks then resumed the following week. On February 29th, there is some, uh, there are some, Jack Anderson, uh, who was a syndicated columnist, talks about how there was some um, leaks of information and uh, and the Nixon administration was uh, looking into it and it was one of several improper activities cited by the Watergate Commission in its final report. Um, now, a couple of things to end on that are not part of the war but are also interesting. Uh, in January 4th, the first scientific handheld calculator, the HP 35, was introduced for the price of $395. On January 5th, Nixon ordered the development of a space shuttle program. And on January 27th, the first home video game system, Odyssey, was introduced by Magnavox. This was designed by Ralph Baer. The console would be hooked up to a television set for two players to play a tennis-like game similar to Nolan Bushnell's game, which was called Pong. And let's just take a look at ads to round us out this month. On the inside cover, we have Extra Innings Baseball for Super Nintendo. It's a hit. Bottom of the 10th. Two out. Bases loaded. And the league's best hitter is at the plate. Will he take your screwball downtown, or will you blow him away with your awesome fastball? Find out when you play Extra Innings, the amazing new game for Super NES. And the graphics that I'm seeing look very, very close to just a, a kind of a more enhanced thing than, uh, say, RBI Baseball or, or original Nintendo Glitch Ball. Um, and you're fighting for a 12-league team pennant. Uh, it doesn't look like these are actual Major League Baseball players or something, but uh, it's it's one of those like video game ads that you see a lot of where there's a shot of the... Um, there's a shot of the of the game box or, or, or a graphic and a couple of small shots of the graphics and stuff and then this long text piece and the kids were really going to read that and they did that for years with some of these things um, there's an ad for the uh, Ralph Bakshi movie Cool World with uh, Brad Pitt and Gabriel Byrne and Kim Basinger um, this was uh I've never seen this movie, but I remember this being like advertised like crazy. It's definitely a product of its time. Uh, Roger Clemens MVP, MVP Baseball for um, the Nintendo Entertainment System. So this is still around the time that the Nintendo uh, Nintendo was still producing games for both systems. It would be a couple more years before they finally um, retired the NES. Uh, there's a two-page, kind of in the middle of the book, uh, right in the middle of the book, um, ad for uh, featuring Robert Cle- Roger Clemens again for Fleer baseball cards. That um, there's a 720 basic card basic set and then a, a limited edition subset, and there are 2,000 signed Roger Clemens cards. This is the middle of the the boom in, in collector card trading, right? Just as it's in the middle of the boom of of uh, of comic book collecting, there's another uh, Fleer ad 
a little bit later on. And it's interesting because, uh, and I think I might have pointed this out before, I mean, comics comics has not been on the same level it has, as it was in the 90s, and it's never really going to get up there. But baseball cards like were even worse. I mean, they, they never really recovered. And there's a couple of really good books about that. Um, one that I've read, and I may have mentioned it before, is called Mint Condition. And it's really about the history of the baseball card industry and, 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 and how and when they talk about the rise and fall of baseball cards in the 80s and the 90s, it really does mirror the comic book industry for those of us who really know the comic industry. So I recommend taking it. There's also one called like Cardboard Heroes. Um, I've never read it. I keep meaning to. I might. Uh, but uh, I would recommend it's just it's an, even if you're not a baseball fan but you're a collectible person, or you're a collector person, it is worth checking out because it's one of those things where like you can really, really relate to it. Entertainment this month is kicking around again. Marvel Cards Series 3. I don't think I really had that many of these. Um, even though th- this is going to be... Blisteringly hot! So I don't, I don't know. I might have had a few, but I, I had a lot of Series 2. Spider-Man's 30th Anniversary, Infinity, Infinity War... Um, Image Comics is kicking around, so there's there's Dragon, not Savage Dragon. It just says Dragon, all new violent superhero by Eric Larson. Hot Spawn, all new superhero series by Todd McFarlane. Hot Youngblood. Hot new team of mutant heroes by Rob Liefeld. Um, this is where you see those deals of if you have if you ordered one copy of Dragon or Spawn. It's a buck seventy-five as opposed to buck ninety-five, which is the cover price. And then three or more, though, you get a price break is a dollar fifty. And remember, and if you've heard me talk to um, Mike Bailey about this uh, last year, they really did push this speculator thing where you would buy more than one um, uh, copy of an issue because you were going to save them up and sell them years down the line for a ton of money. Truth be told, I did get a good like eighty bucks. 70 or 80 dollars for like the first 60 or 70 issues of spawn at one point in the early 2000s and so thank you ebay but not on the level that people were really going to think that spawn number one was going to go for in the batman uh realm you've got the batman returns deluxe uh movie adaptation by danny o'neill and dick giordano uh, and then catwoman defiant penguin triumphant and run riddler run which i've heard of Never read, though. I wonder if it's any good. And then Shadow of the Bat had started up around this time. In Bullpen Bulletins, stands on his soapbox again, and he's talking about the, how the... the uh, he, he goes through the whole thing about the Marvel method of writing. Then you've got... Uh, let's see, it's April. That means, once again, the Shadow News, the latest going-ons at Mighty Marvel. And the column is being written in January, and they go through the whole thing about the Christmas party etc etc jim lee is still around at this point because he's mentioned two or three times but i think he's just on the outs like uh, i think he's just about to leave because i think and honestly i think he was you know i don't i i don't know enough of the story behind image just to know if they all left at once or what but it seems that like you know you've got everybody else but him and is mentioned on the Entertainment This Month thing, and he's mentioned twice in this. So this must have been the very, very end of, of his time at Marvel. They're, they've got the cool meter going. Um, 
and they, they would do this for a number of years. I, I, until I don't remember when bullet pen bulletins finally kind of faded away completely from Marvel uh, Comics, probably after the nom finished. But um, here we go. Here's what the bullpen bulletin bullpen was buzzing about in January. So I'm going to go from cool to uncool. I'm going to read the whole thing. Blue Man Group, Squirrel Girl, Nuclear Families, Ren and Stimply, North Star Exposure, Oliver Stone, Typo Negative, Liquid Television, Den- Designated Drivers, Dennis Miller, and that's where we're about um, in the middle here. Long sideburns on men, long bangs on women, above two courtesy of Beverly Hills 90210. Spontaneous combustion, Murphy Brown as a mom, corduroy pants, bottle tap water, CD long boxes, and fast food. So CD long boxes were pretty much on the out anyway, and fast food being the two uncool things. Thanks, Marvel. Uh, upper Deck has a baseball card. A lot of baseball card ads in this. Upper Deck has a baseball card ad with Ken Griffey Jr. stepping out of the baseball card and, you know, with his with his patented swing because nothing brings you closer to the action, closer to the players, closer to the game than Upper Deck. There are two house ads for Marvel Comics UK. Uh, one is for Motormouth, and the first issue guest stars Nick Fury uh, with a cover by Gary Frank which is very tank girl, post-apocalyptic, Mad Max type of thing. Marvel British sub-universe has begun, don't miss it. And then there is Warheads, which I don't, I can't, I don't know who did this cover. Um, Marvel's British sub-universe begins with a big bang, and big guns and high-tech mysticism, first start issue co-starring Wolverine, of course. The Thing is holding up the uh, subscription ad on the last page. On the inside back cover is the 1991-92 Fleer basketball player photo cards. Uh, and we see Dikimini Matumbo and Dominique Wilkins have limited edition subsets. And um, on the back, there's another Fleer ad. Fleer took a lot of ads out in this issue uh, with Tony Gwynn. Um, the late Tony Gwynn, who was one of the best hitters I'd ever seen in baseball, by the way. I just want to note that. Um, Tony, it says Gwynn, there's a big headline. It's made to look of like a newspaper page. It says Gwynn signs with best Fleer Ultra lineup ever. And uh, it's collectible subsets. Of this. So this is where you're getting, whereas with comic books you had at this point, you're getting into the age of variant chromium covers and 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 foil covers and hologram covers baseball cards would have like limited edition cards and subsets and some would be signed and they would be, they were variant card with other um, like limited edition cards and there would be hologram cards. I think they, I think they refer to these as chase cards and, and that would be your foil cover. It's equivalent in, uh, in, in, in comic, uh, sorry, in uh, baseball cards and, and collectible cards because I had a set of the, um, DC Cosmic uh, cards, which I had an almost had a whole full set. I think I was missing one or two of the um, hologram cards, and I was missing one card. I was missing the Booster Gold card. Um, I sold all my trading cards, so if if you're feeling generous and want to send me the Booster Gold Cosmic cards, don't. I don't have them anymore. Uh, and then I remember I had the entire set, holograms, and the actual cards of the cosmic teams set but yeah they had those chase cards in there the the, the, the 
of uh, holograms and, and things like that. So uh, to get you to buy more packs and stuff. So, but yeah, that'll do it for the Punisher Invading the Nom in issue number 69. Uh, I will be back next episode, not with another issue of the Nom, but I'm going to take a break to cover another movie. This time around, I'm going to be covering the Robin Williams classic, Good Morning Vietnam. And then after that, we're going to head headlong into the Don Lomax era of the Nom. This is Chuck Dixon's last issue here. And uh, the non-Lomax issue of the, uh, the Nam, uh, era of the Nam will begin with issue 70 and a three-part storyline called Operation Chicken Lips, which will, which I'll start covering in two episodes. So until then, feel free to send your feedback. Uh, I would love to hear from, from people. It seems like people like the Facebook page all the time. So um, even if it's an old, even if it's an old episode or something, um, uh, I, w- I would love to hear anything. Uh, and also, feel free to leave a rating for this show in iTunes, and uh, that would help you get more visibility. Uh, and until then, thanks for listening, and take care. smiled and turned away I went down to the sacred store Where I'd heard the music years before you have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of the nom Chevy to the levy but the levy was dry and them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye singing this'll be the day that I die this'll be the day that I die they were singing bye bye Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this'll be the day that I die.